Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 22nd, 2021. The actually, it is Infrastructure Week edition. I am David Plotz. I am... Of CityCast, and I'm still here in Vermont, USA. I'll be back in Washington, D.C. later, but I'm still in Vermont. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning Face the Nation, probably from Manhattan, I guess. Hello, John. Yes, from the city of New York. And back from Europe, where she's done the grand tour, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, guys. Nice to be back. Uh, are you the first of us to have, to have crossed the American border since the pandemic began? Maybe I mean, so. If neither of you have, then yes. Congratulations on getting they back. They still exist, those other countries. They were happy to have us, seemingly. This week, the vaccine crisis, the Delta variant is rampant, yet vaccination rates are not going back up. What can be done to get more Americans vaxxed? Then... Why is this infrastructure bill stagnating? Didn't they make a deal on it? Is there going to be an infrastructure bill? What is happening with that Senate of ours? And then the Tokyo Olympics start tomorrow. Should they start tomorrow? Should they exist at all? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. Vaccine rates are dropping. There's a political dimension to that. Republicans are far less likely to be vaccinated than Democrats and are far less likely now to want to get vaccinated. But there are lots of other dimensions too. Black Americans, for example, are getting vaxxed at lower rates. Young Americans are getting vaxxed at much lower rates. Meanwhile, people like me, say, or like Emily, say, are seething that the FDA has not yet officially approved vaccines. So we're going to talk today about how we can get vaccine rates up. I think we're going to posit for the sake of this GabFest audience, because I think all three of us believe it, that getting people vaccinated is probably the best thing we can do to get this pandemic under control. That There's no vaccine doubt that's going to be creeping into this GabFest, I suspect. We are, the Not premise is, me. the premise is like, <laughs> vaccines are good, let's get more people vaccinated, how can we do that? There are a lot of good ideas. So, Emily, let's start with um, with one of the things that's been irritating the hell out of you and me both, the FDA's sloth in switching the approval from an emergency use authorization for these vaccines, in which they're saying, these vaccines, we don't even know if they work. If you read the fine print, it's like, we don't know if these things do anything. It's like, this is like just having a jar of Gatorade to making an actual Wait, is full that really approval. what they say? Well, that did, did isn't you, what they say. That That's the what problem. Well, it is what That's they say the if you read rub. the fine print. If you read the fine print, it's like, this is not yes. an approved vaccine. We don't know if this works. If you actually well, read the documents they give you. But then they and say yet, on the all side. all the messaging is that they do believe it works yeah. and they want us to take them, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to align myself here with uh, my colleague David Leanhard, who pointed this out earlier in the week, that every important public health official in the United States is begging people to be vaccinated while the fine print continues to talk about emergency use. And it's, 
what but, but, David was sorry, arguing. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just to interrupt. Is not the fine print. If they, you when you go to get vaccinated, they give you something, and the first thing it says, I don't have it in front of me, is this is not an approved vaccine for the COVID nineteen. There is no approved vaccine for COVID nineteen. Okay, it it's not the fine it. print. It's, it's the it's print. It's the big print. <laughs> fine, and I think the problem here is the FDA's normal process. Right. Let's make the FDA's argument. We have a process we go through. This is a big deal to end emergency authorization and finally bless the vaccine completely. And we're not going to rush our process. And if we do rush our process, Americans will lose confidence in the vaccine. So that's their argument. The other argument, which David Leonhardt, among other people, has been making loudly and other public health uh, folks, I should say, like Eric Topol, is, um, wait a second, we need everybody to get vaccinated faster you're undermining the public health messaging here by not expediting your approach. If your normal approach is this slow and we're having this emergency pandemic, you should change your approach. If everybody knows that the vaccine will get final approval in, you know, August or September, October, which is what President Biden said this week, then let's just go ahead and do it. And To me, the key question is about vaccine mandates here, right? I have no idea how many people are not getting vaccinated because they're worried about this emergency interim approval, but it is clear that it's affecting, you know, the military, police forces, universities, employers in in making them reluctant, a lot of them to impose vaccine mandates. And those mandates, we should talk about whether that's even a good idea, but that is one route to more people getting vaccinated. In Ohio this week, there was a bill that had to do with school funding, and part of the bill had a mandatory vaccination for returning to the school year. Governor DeWine didn't support that mandate. And what he said was, because DeWine is on the kind of pro-vaccination spectrum of the Republican Party, and what he said was, that'll all be taken care of once the FDA grants full authorization. And then based on full authorization, it'll kind of, the, the COVID vaccine will slip into the normal vaccinations you need to have in order to go back to school. And so that's emphasizing your point that that's just one of the many ways. The Kaiser poll showed, I think it was 30 some odd percent said they would be more likely to get it if there was full authorization. And when I when I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, Governor Hutchinson of Arkansas, one of the hardest hit states, that was his first uh, point about why his efforts to get people vaccinated were failing is that people felt like somehow not being fully authorized was some sign that it wasn't quite correct. But of course, we've had this amazing experiment of, uh, you know, hundred, well, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people have gotten the vaccination. It's a billion. But I, Billions. I understand. There have right. been three billion doses worldwide. Yeah, I was thinking of it in the States. But my understanding is that what they're looking at is is no longer whether it works or doesn't work. That's all the stuff they had to figure, and whether it's safe or not safe. They had to figure that out to get emergency use authorization, but that this is about stability of the vaccine in doctor's offices, how it's transported, you know, shelf stability and and those kinds of issues. Look, I understand if you're a Republican governor, it, the politics of this are not easy for you to say, like, oh, we're going to do a mandate. And and I think it's perfectly reasonable, in fact, for governments to wait and say we cannot do a mandate until there's an FDA approval. But I also find it a little disingenuous for Hutchinson or DeWine to say, oh, that's the main reason when there is this also entire armature of people out in the world who are ca- casting doubt, discouraging vaccination, 
and and ginning up a kind of froth and frenzy around it, in, all of whom are associated with your political party, as it happens. Well, so you, it's not as simple as saying, like, well, that'll solve it, because that will sort of solve it, but you still have this these terrible politics around it. Well, you're mixing two things. One is an actual law that would go into place, which would be mandating vaccines that's triggered by that. The other is whether the argument is satisfactory to convince people. And sure, there's, I mean, there are lots of reasons people aren't getting, and one of one of the main ones is, is that all the voices they're hearing are saying that this is suspicious and that this is the big arm of the government. But those are, Hutchinson and DeWine are in two different places, are facing two different things and talking about two different things. Can I invoke my trip to Europe here? I mean, you know, Americans have had more access to the vaccine than most other countries, and yet we've politicized it more. And it's pretty tragic. We have this Delta variant, which is more contagious, this like horrible, you know, latest problem. And we have all the vaccine we need. We can't get people to take it. Meanwhile, in, you know, the developing world, it's still incredibly hard to get vaccinated, right? I mean, there are countries where it's still at like 1%. Even in Europe, there remains less access. It's been slower. And it's not politicized the way it is here, at least in Germany, where I was. Just the whole thing. It's such an American paradox that people's definition of freedom is to not get vaccinated, even though that is the clearest route out. I don't think that it's not politicized at all, Emily. I was reading a little bit, like, the German far right is politicizing it. Yeah, I don't but think their it's... support is declining. Like, they are a smaller fraction of the country. You don't right. hear about That's it. True. When I was saying to people, like, are people politicizing the vaccine? What about masks? It just didn't have the same yeah. polarizing yeah. force. And what's amazing is the politicization is going on in real time as the Delta variant is ravaging these neighborhoods. Here's a good example Jason Smith, who's in Missouri, he's a Senate candidate, is saying that, you know, the, that, that the Biden uh, government is going door to door like the KGB. As we know, Missouri is one of the hardest hit states. Springfield, Missouri the, uh, is basically one of the biggest hotspots. I mean, the CEO of Cox Health there, Steve Edwards, is tweeting about, you know, please get vaccinated so nurses don't have to zip up more body bags. It's one thing to be a member of a party whose uh, commentators are casting doubt on vaccinations. It's another thing in real time when people are dying at rates like near last winter in your community to be spreading false information and using this for political gain when the downside of your political gain is people getting sicker. I mean, that's a real-time choice to be awful. John, don't you sense, at least in the last few days, there there is at least some quiver of doubt that's entered the the, the general Republican uh, um, mind about this, that there there you hear more and more Republican politicians saying, go out, get vaxxed. Now, that may be that may be uh, opportunistic by a few people, but I suspect like they have must be seeing some really terrible polling numbers in certain states or they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, necessarily start talking about it. Yeah, it's you have to kind of figure out I mean, when Sean yeah. Hannity talks about uh, getting vaccinated, that is a change. So that that seems to have, have changed in the last week. Right. I mean, we have to bring up Fox and social media here. They've had such a role in spreading disinformation. It, it is. I, I want to like switch to other things that can be done around vaccination rates in a second. But I just want to make one point which continues to baffle me, which is it is bizarre to me that former President Trump has run away from the vaccines. 
it would have been when you think back on like the last you know eight months of the of history, the thing that would have you know maybe I'm wrong, but no, the thing the thing right. that that might have made may, might have made a huge difference at least in vaccination rates among among Republicans is Trump just you know bragging taking credit he's so good at bragging he's so good at taking credit and this is the thing where like arguably his administration didn't do a bad job they'd like you know operation rolling thunder or, or restless falcon or whatever it was called operation warp, speed. warp drive warp speed operation warp speed actually you know it did the it did the job like the government didn't get in the way they got it out they got it out quickly he could it was the easy thing take credit he would have made him look good. It would have upped his approval ratings nationwide, and he's just chosen to boot that away. And it's it's so it's so confounding and frustrating, and stupid. But whatever. So what do we do about the mistrust? Because there are different flavors of mistrust in different um, vax less communities, but mistrust is a common factor here. Would the would mandates increase vaccination rates? across the board? Are they going to cause a backlash? Um, You know, in my city where the lower rates continue to be more among lower income people, it seems like mandates for work might make a real difference. But I could imagine in a place that's very Republican that people could revolt and maybe that's not a good idea. I mean, I would say yes and yes. Mandates will get more people vaccinated and they will create a backlash. Both of those things are true. I, I, Matt Iglesias had a nice column where he said, like, pick the easier targets. Don't say let's get mandates in every red state immediately or every even purple state. Like, Democratic governors in very Democratic states should, should as soon as the FDA approves, should put mandates in there for those places where it's the military. The military should do right? it. Yeah, they're used to being ordered around, but not not to try to for not to tr- not try to force it on every place at every moment with as much strength and sort of say like let's get the wins where we can get the wins and that every bit helps. Um, I, that sort of made sense to me. One of the things that's working, at least in Springfield, Missouri, is is in a conservative community is having pastors and preachers talk about saying things like, I don't want half of the, the con- congregation vaccinated and the other half not. That plus door-to-door knocking seems to be paying off a little bit. Um, in, I think it was France. Yeah, I think it's France, where um, when they mandated you needed to have vaccination to do certain public things, the, the requests for vaccination shot up. Yeah, and then 100,000 people, protesters, flooded the streets, I believe, yeah. in Paris. So there you go. <laughs> Vaccinations went up and there was a backlash. So, Emily, I want to hit, as we exit this, on a point that has been made by a number of people. Ross Douth, that our friend, uh, made it in The Times this week, which was just like, why not pay people a lot more to do it? Like, can can you up vaccination rates by saying, we're, we're going to pay you $1,000 to get vaccinated. $1,000. Do you think that would make a difference? Well, it's such an interesting question right now where the government actually is giving out more money. Like, And this is something the government wants from people. So, you know, it sort of feels like, hmm, maybe that could be connected in some way. Um, do you feel, David, in, in D.C., they're paying people, I think, in these $51 gift cards? Yeah, I got Have no gift card. About that? I is got that no gift thing? card. I didn't. I, the first I heard about it was reading about it yesterday in preparation. I knew nothing about it. Now, maybe they started it after I got vaxxed. $51 is pretty mingy, though, compared to $1,000. Yeah. And also, you guys know this, but but there are different. you've got different audiences. There's certain audiences where it is just, 
you know, it's an irritant to get vaccinated, so the 51 gets you past that irritant. But there are other people for whom the ideology is is insurmountable by money or personal relationship with a doctor. Well, forget those people, right? I mean, those people are the hardest ones. Don't forget them, but they're not first. No, Whereas exactly. I bet yeah. for a lot of young people, money would make a difference, right? Because, look, you know, if you're only thinking about yourself and you're young— the risks are not so great from COVID that it's obvious in the same way it is for older people that you just have to get vaccinated. Whereas if someone was going to give you, you know, a hundred bucks, 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, like, I don't know, I bet it would, some of the young people I've talked to just seem like they haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah. And I, judging from the line people used to stand in to get one free scoop of ice cream at Ben and Jerry's by our old office, right. for hours they would right. stand in line for a free scoop <laughs> right. of damn ice cream. So based on right. that behavior in certain cities, I think 51 bucks would make people run over their grandmother to get vaccinated. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The joke during the Trump administration was that it was always infrastructure week, the, the notion being that they were constantly declaring or about to declare it was infrastructure week and then would get distracted by whatever nonsense was actually uh, preoccupying President Trump. And so there was never any infrastructure. Another, like, total... Total own goal by Trump, like speaking of the vaccines, if he had done infrastructure, it would have been great for him. But whatever. Let's not talk about that. The Biden administration, it feels like it's never quite infrastructure week, John. Is it infrastructure week at last or is it again not going to be infrastructure week? Well, the big difference is it's always infrastructure week in the sense that there are conversations going on. There are the details of sausage making that are happening. It looks like, you know, old fashioned legislating. And that's fine. That pace is totally natural and it's all fine. The big question that is still on the table and that infrastructure points to perhaps uh, above everything else is that there have been bipartisan agreements, things that have passed huge anti huge com competitiveness bill uh, aimed at, at thwarting China's rise that passed with massive bipartisan approval. There have been bills that passed like that. But the question is, which bill and where is it that's on the line there? That Because there's plenty of stuff that won't pass uh, because Republicans won't vote for it. But infrastructure sits right on the line where you've got local reasons that Republicans would want to vote for it. 
And the question was always, could you, through the old sausage making process, create something that would get 10 Republican votes and overcome the systemic reasons that Republicans would never want to vote for anything that would give the president a win? All of those systemic reasons are the rise of conservative media, the the primaries that are coming up that Republicans have to worry about, the fact that control of the Senate is very close and giving a win to the Democratic Party waters down your ability to run and say, hey, they're doing nothing, elect us and put us in charge. All those structural reasons that have been making politics harder for the last 20, 30 years are all aligned against the self-interest of those who might want to vote for an infrastructure bill. So that's all going on. This week, Chuck Schumer tried to force a vote to at least get conversation going. It didn't go anywhere, but it looks like it's it's all still possible. But in the Trump presidency, there was never a bill. There were never discussions. It was a it was I mean, it was much more of a joke. This is just the slow process of sausage making in our current political environment. So what I find both interesting and frustrating about this, this feels like a return to status quo ante. It's like, yes, there is legislating going on, but also there's a lot of bad faith legislating going on. That you, It's clear that a lot of Republicans really don't want this to happen. They're, they're, they do have this kind of hard infrastructure bill, almost a, close to a billion dollars for hard infrastructure, roads and bridges and I think the grid and water. That's good. It's fine. It's good. Good stuff. But the Republicans are objecting to any way of paying for it. So they they complain that it's not paid for, but then the Democrats are proposing ways to play, pay for it. So raising gas taxes, rolling back the the tax cuts for the rich. And the one that really gets my goat is, is IRS enforcement. So Democrats want to pay for this by saying, we're going to step up IRS enforcement so that all the people who are cheating on their taxes will start to have to pay. And even that was blocked because Republicans hate the idea of any expansive IRS power. So it's it's very um, it's very hard to do bipartisanship if one group will not look at the revenue side of the ledger. That's another obstacle. What you've just said, David, supports the notion that basically President Obama ended his presidency believing, which was, and that Joe Biden has actively resisted, that you can talk about bipartisanship, but when it comes down to the final details in the final moment, there will always be a reason not to vote for it or always be a reason not to get to yes. And that that reason is essentially pre-cooked by the structural forces I went through earlier. And that going down the bipartisan road is a fool's errand. Um, I have a theory about why it isn't, but I'll stop talking for a minute. This week, though, it seemed like what the 10 or 11 Republicans who might vote for the infrastructure bill were objecting to was that it wasn't all written out yet. Was that like just a normal process uh, objection that suggests that they will still be on board? Or are those votes, is that just like an excuse for the votes never to materialize? We're not sure. They said... Just gives us a little more time till next week and we'll get on board. So we'll have to see whether they do. I don't think it's dead yet. It may die in its next round, but this won't kill it, even though they didn't vote to go into debate because they said there were no details yet. John, do you think that Biden and his folks are actually perplexed that the deal has become molasses? He, Biden said this week, oh, we had a handshake. And it sounded so naive, but he's obviously, a, you know, an intelligent person with a lot of experience. Is he actually puzzled or is he just posing as puzzled? I think there is a part of bipartisan theater that is important here for two reasons. Because he's about to pass with 50 votes, he hopes, a $3.5 trillion spending package through the Senate, which on a totally straight partisan party line vote. To do so, he needs two Democrats who care about the appearance of bipartisanship and need to be able to say, look, we really tried it on infrastructure and they weren't there with us. So we went this 50 vote reconciliation route on the $3.5 trillion spending. 
he won't be able to pass that spending if he doesn't get those two Democrats. And so participating in the the bipartisan dance is necessary to get the legislation passed. But it's also necessary because I think it has that connective tissue to the next thing that Biden wants. And he can't just pass it with 50 votes because he doesn't have 50 Democratic right. votes yet. Right. And part of the small purchase price is this right. bipartisan theater, I think. I want to make two points. One, I find it odd and kind of frustrating that the Washington doesn't do infrastructure all the time. When borrowing costs are this low, it's basically almost free for the U.S. government to spend to build things, anything they want. It's 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 virtually like it's it's really almost free, and it's it's kind of weird that they don't just do it all the time. And if 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 we had a normal functioning political system, there would be so much infrastructure spending right now because it's very easy for the government to do it, and the payoff generally is is well worth it. That's one point, but that's a, set that aside. The second question for you, Emily, is this is all this hard infrastructure, but there's this, if you remember back to the conversations we were having several months ago, there was the discussion of softer infrastructure, child care, uh, around education, which is not going to get in this bill. Republicans won't vote for it. Do you think we're ever going to get to that? Do you think there is going to be a another bite at this where where some of these softer things get in? Or was it, will it be in the $3.5 trillion spending package? I mean, I think that this depends on the dance that John was talking about. So if you're the Biden people, you say, well, once Manchin and Cinema see that we've done this bipartisan effort— whichever way it goes, then they'll be much more likely to sign on to this larger democratic effort because they can say, well, we tried and the Republicans wouldn't um, dance with us. And so we're going off and doing our own thing later. And it'll just depend on them. I mean, I feel like that is the really boring answer to basically all these questions about legislation. Well, and and I don't want to leave the impression that that dance is the only thing that's going to be required to get the 3.5 through. I mean, I think there's concerns about inflation that will have a moment. I mean, it's having a moment now. Mansion and cinema are tough cats to figure out. So I don't want to pretend that this dance is the only thing, but it is a part of getting to whatever Democrats are going to get to get their 3.5. But they're going to try and stuff as much of that stuff you mentioned, David, into that spending as possible. John, can I close the segment with a totally off the off the track question, which is I noticed this My week uh, uh, that Republicans may object to the debt ceiling. So that so as we learn tediously every few years, well, there's this thing where you have to authorize the debt ceiling, even though the government is already spending the money. There's this law that you have to authorize the government to to uh, to go this much into debt, and there's always a threat that the U.S. is going to default and came very close a few years ago. There was the trillion, if you remember, the trillion dollar coin. The trillion dollar coin. Dollar and so coin. I like so, that out. So uh, these days you'd have to print like four trillion dollar coins. Here is my question to you, John, which is if Democrats have to take a party line vote to extend the debt ceiling, why can they can they not just extend the debt ceiling by like a Ten quadrillion dollars. Eight million years. Ten quadrillion dollars. Yeah, like a Googleplex dollar. We now authorize the U.S. government to go into to an infinite amount of debt, effectively, and that so that never has to come back. Now you take that hard, you take that vote once, and it's it's like weird because you've just said we're going to spend a ten quadrillion dollars eventually, but then it never has to come up again. Why don't they do it? Is it just that they don't want the politics, or is they can't legally do that? I I am afraid I don't have a satisfying answer. Um, because there could be some fantastic um, Senate rule that I don't know about that limits the size of the debt ceiling increase. I think, and now they have tried in the past to, 
I think it was Dick Gephardt who popularized and maybe even spearheaded, or he spearheaded, but I think maybe even conceived of the basically getting rid of the whole damn debt ceiling and stopping this process, making it, I think, more or less automatic. I like um, when you stump John on Senate and yeah. House the, rules. That's like a, that's uh, a win for the morning. Uh, um, it takes a lot. But I, I, uh, but I, what I would to, say he's is- He's trying to answer it. I, yeah, but I would say is that there is yeah, like, where that did I that, that Dick I, fact come from. Um, it, it is that um, who is that? I, I, just kidding. I think you're right about um, yeah. They don't want to be seen as. I mean, the whole reason McConnell is doing this is to say, you know, as inflation fears are are increasing and people on fixed income, you know, worry about inflation, and to the extent that Republicans want to get fixed income voters in states like Florida, you know, they want people to be talking about inflation. And this connects with that. We should mention, of course, that the the size of the debt and the size of the deficit blossomed ex- extraordinarily under President Trump. And there was none of this concern that gets forgotten in these conversations. But it's worth pointing out that this sudden concern about the debt and deficit was largely absent during the last four years. Nevertheless, I don't think you want as a Democrat to increase something beyond all, you know, numbers because it would allow, you know, Republicans to say, oh my gosh, they're, they're increased by increasing the debt ceiling, 10 gajillion Googleplexes. Um, it's a sign of their profligacy. Um, right. So I think basically you're probably right about the politics of it. I don't know about the structure of the Senate reasons for it. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest, also no ads on any Slate podcast, also extra episodes of certain shows like Slow Burn, and you support what we're doing here on the GabFest. It's only a dollar for your first month of membership, and you can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up today. And our topic, Slate Plus topic this week is, the billionaire space race, is it cute or is it folly? That'll be fun. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Tokyo Olympics start on Friday, or they've actually started already, but the opening ceremonies are on Friday. And it is safe to say that these are the least anticipated, least hyped, and least look forward to summer games in a long, long time, certainly that I can remember. Japan is in the midst of a Delta variant surge. It also has a very slow vaccination campaign. Visitors have been barred from Japan. So have spectators from all the events. Athletes are failing COVID tests left and right, and there'll surely be a ton more positive tests before the games are over. Plus, Tokyo in July and August are just, it's a horrid place to be. It is so humid. It is a tropical climate, mysteriously, even though it's so far north. It's tropically hot and humid. And I just noticed today that there's a typhoon bearing down on Tokyo as well. Typhoon's supposed to hit it this weekend, so there you go. And also the opening ceremonies director was bounced on on Wednesday for having told Holocaust jokes in the past. So there's a lot there's a lot going against these games. Emily, is it a mistake to hold them? 
I mean, I am the last person to stick up for the Olympics. I don't normally care that much about the Olympics. And the main thing I've noticed this year is that Shikari Richardson doesn't get to run the 100-meter dash because, like, she smoked pot once after getting some terrible news about her own family. That just, like, completely turned me off and infuriated me. I guess if you're going to try to defend this, you think about all the athletes who've trained and what it would mean to miss this. They've already postponed it by a year. For them, that's really horrible. Um, I mean, this was meant to be an Olympics that was a sign that the world was recovering from the pandemic and kind of exiting it. The problem is that the timing just turned out to be wrong on that score. I always think about COVID risks as like trade-offs, and this just doesn't seem like the one that's worth it to me. John, should they have the Olympics? I mean, it depends. (laughs) That's such a big question. This is a gap fest, man. We take big questions here. Yeah. I know this we asked the tough questions here. This is not trivial here. pursuit. You can't handle whether we should have no, the no, Olympics no. or not. Well, it's no because you know it's always a question of time uh, when you're asking a question. Is, you know, so is, right now in this moment, should they cancel them? Um, I mean, that is still yeah, that's, uh, that's different. different than should the Olympics exist or should they exist in their kind of quasi corrupt way? And and in the larger question, oh, be be real, it's fully corrupt. <laughs> not quasi-corrupt. It's totally um, corrupt. Well, no, but I think what what always, <laughs> I'm going to get this point out if it's the last thing I do, is in the, in the nope. Olympics, there's always this tension between the incentives for buck raking and money making on the backs of these athletes and then the extraordinary moments that you have in Olympics. I mean, it is a, it is one time when in some of these signature moments, people all across the globe who speak a multiplicity of languages at the very same time watching their phones or TVs experience the same range of emotions at the same time. It is like a singular event in human uh, behavior. That is, that is not nothing. And that is weighed against the corruption of the, of the games and, and that corruption, not the corrupt, well, there's the corruption and then, then there's just the greediness of all the people who make money off of it, which doesn't include the athletes. So that there's that constant question of the Olympics. I feel like in, in, after the globe has been through this, what what has been through with this pandemic, the games have a chance to do the best of what sport can do, which is remind us of our common humanity, humanity, inject joy and hope, and even the transformational kind of out of yourself experience that happens when you see heartbreak. So I don't want to get rid of that, but it's a tough call because what? How many? There's seventy some odd cases now attached to the Olympics and. It feels like, given where we are with the Delta variant, just, you know, it's going to get, it can't not get worse. It's not going to just stop. So I, I don't know what you're right, your question. Here we go. I don't, it's not even a hard case. Of course they should have the Olympics. It is, it's ludicrous to think they should cancel it at this point. At this point. So you're not saying they should even have ludicrous had to think, it. No, they definitely should have had it too. Ugh. Definitely should have had it. So there's always, at any Olympics, there's this tension between these corrupt sportocrats, these local politicians shilling for glory, the incredibly wasteful spending on these white elephant stadiums that never get used again. And then against that, what John was talking about, which I want to get into, like John was very poetic about what is great about it. And now we have that we have all of that bad stuff. Plus, we have the health risk. Plus, we have the fact that most of the Japanese people don't even want the games at this point. Yeah, that should matter. It should matter a little bit. And, and the fact that the, the IOC contract, when you look at the IOC contract with <laughs> the host government, it's incredible. It is like the, the Tokyo can basically, and the Japanese government can basically not cancel this under any circumstance. If they do, they are on the hook for an enormous amount of money. 
Um, and it's it's you know this this outside totally corrupt entity f- forcing a contract on Tokyo because Tokyo wants to hold the games. That said, the athletes want to do it, and billions of us around the world watch it and fall in love with team handball or Greco wrestling, Greco Greco Roman wrestling, or whatever it is, and we are storytelling people. Like we're storytelling humans and like we live for story and the Olympics is the best campfire that we have because it is, it, it creates story without us having to have violence, without us having to have war, yet there's competition, yet it is a competition that it creates unity. It creates unity across the world. And when you think about the kind of energy and money that's been invested in the Olympics over the years and all the corruption and waste and terrible politics and, you know, Berlin 1936 and all of that, like it is way, 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 way more good has come out of this than has ever been invested. And it's the the sense of uplift and feeling and connection and drama is worth so much to us. And there's so few opportunities for this. I mean, we saw this in small scale, those of us who are soccer fans, watching this European the yeah, European I was thinking Cup. about that. Why can't we just do that stuff, which seems well, much safer than this? Well, well, the European Cup is one one version of it. And it, why was the European Cup much safer? It wasn't much safer. They had tons of fans in the stadiums. They, it wasn't. I don't know. You're not having it wasn't people safer. from all over the world come to this one city. We laid out all the reasons why this seems well, more dangerous. Well, you did. You did have people. No, go, the British. You kept had people it, like flying to Baku and Azerbaijan. I and, think you like, had to already. They. I, anyway, I thought you had to already be in the UK to go to the final, at least. Whatever. Continue oh, to, on. Maybe to go to the final. Well, anyway. To go, yeah, sure, to go to the final. But it is, it is. yes, we, there's very likely there's going to be a super spreader or a semi-spreader event. There will be disease and death that will be increased because of this. But the, the sum total of human well-being, which is not just is there disease and death, but also are we, do we feel connected in the world? Do we, are we having some experience of exaltation, of uplift? will be magnified. And if you don't have the Olympics, like it's a huge loss of that. And it's a huge cost of that. That's why the TV contracts cost billions and billions of dollars because people really want to watch and they watch because it makes them feel good. And making people feel good is like a positive good in the world. And so you weigh it against all these all the corruption and the loss and the and the illness, but like to me, it's not. It is like prob. It's not even close. I mean, watch watch it cause like a whole separate new viral pandemic of some other virus, and then I'll regret it. But I really think it's going to be great. You seem to be argue that no matter what the cost, it's worth it. Pretty much, I just, yeah. Ugh. Well, he's say, or he's saying it's worth a big risk because of the. I yeah. love that line about uh, this is the best campfire we have. I wish I'd had that. Virus. All yours. Well, it's. Um, um, yeah, well, that's much more eloquently said than what I was basically trying to say, although I think, but I guess I was being chicken and, and more, um, nervous about it it becoming a super spreader event, which is like just feeling the, the rapacious nature of the Delta variant is, um, you know, and the numbers in Tokyo is, is kind of giving me pause. That's, it should, sure. I just have no romance about the Olympics. I'm not like an Olympics hater. I'm just like indifferent. It's so odd, Emily, because you have a lot of romance about sport generally. Why not the Olympics? I don't believe you. I don't even believe you. I bet. I actually, I don't believe her either. I don't believe In two weeks, you'll be talking about Simone Biles left and right. I'm excited to be proved wrong. I just, I like, I'm searching my memory for Olympic moments. They're just, I just, I don't know. When Carrie Strug landed 
the the, the second vault with a sprained ankle to beat the Russians yeah. for the gold. That did nothing for I you. I don't remember. Like, I, if you had Usain Bolt watching Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt. That was that was. I remember who he is at least. <laughs> well, I don't know what it. to say. Yeah. I just it's so episodic. The whole thing. I whatever. I, but I don't mean but the, to actually, be the episode. But isn't the episodic nature of it exactly what is part of the the beauty that David was describing, which is that that there are these moments that that flare up, and the the elements that create that flare up, the the chemical compounds of that flare up, are these deeply human, elementally human, because they have to cross all languages and and regions, and they just flare up. And the reason we all gravitate to them is because we can all see ourselves. In one way or another, even in the defeat and the heartbreak, yeah. in this yeah. moment, it's like this basic language. All right, yeah. I'll try to watch it in that spirit this time, since it is happening. John, what's your favorite Olympic sport? One, it's the Olympic sport I didn't know about, and that suddenly became amazing because of some, you know, like, I don't know, some badminton or Greco-Roman wrestling, as you mentioned, or fencing um, because of some just moment of competition, all those things I was just talking about. But I guess gymnastics is probably um, the the one that has the most kind of amp. The drama kind of goes up on a constant uh, line and then pays off at the end. It has the most opportunity for that. So for me, it's gymnastics and ice skating. And this, I will say, in defense of the Olympics, it makes women's sports incredibly central, especially for those two very, very exciting competitions. And I do appreciate that about it. That's it. That's all I got for the Olympics. I hear they play soccer. I'm, I'm a, I love track and field. I wish track and field was a big U.S. spectator sport. It's big in Europe. Yeah, that's I, a good point. It is the time we pay the most attention to track and field. I love watching people run. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are sitting back having just watched hours and hours of the Olympics. Although it's weird because it's in Tokyo, so the time zone stuff is going to be all weird, but whatever. They're doing certain, they're running certain things in the morning, which ought to be run in the evening just so they can get the US TV audience. But anyway, you're having your cocktail. Emily, what are you going to be chattering about? So I was just in Berlin and I was struck by all the ways in which uh, Berliners memorialize difficult moments in their history that are small, that you literally can like stumble over. So one example are the Stolperstein, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, the Stumble Stones. Um, There are 70,000 of them now across Europe that they are right outside of the house of someone who was deported or otherwise affected by the Holocaust. And it says their name and it says what happened to them. And they're literally under your feet. And I just kept thinking about all our arguments and roiling in the United States right now about how to remember slavery and African-American tragic history and Native American tragic history. And this kind of memorial seems like such an opportunity, the kinds that are small that you just sort of go on with your daily life, but they could affect you in some way. Another example is... Can, can I... Sorry, can yeah. I just... That's amazing. I Just on the stopper stone, are they... Do you actually stumble? Are they elevated so that you they're would stumble? Bra- they're, I think, brass. They're metal plaques that are like on top of a cobblestone, right? Outside of a So house it's not that or, it's people are tripping. It's not you that don't people are trip, tri- but you okay. walk on them. Okay. They're like right there. Like you walk outside of your house every morning and it's there in front of you. 
So another example is called The Empty Library, and it's a memorial to the burning of books, this giant conflagration by the Nazis in the Bebelplatz in Berlin. And it's um, it's by the Israeli sculptor Michal Ullman, and it's just this plexiglass opening, a couple of them, in the pavement of the plaza, and you look down and you see these empty bookshelves. I was quite taken with this. Reflecting on that, Emily, the, the danger is forgetting, and that's a great you know, wonderful way to not forget. I mean, the danger in any of these things. John, what's your chatter? I guess I'll do two of them, because one is one is a column written by uh, Jack Thomas in the Boston Globe, um, and it's titled, I Just Learned I Only Have Months to Live. This is what I want to say. It's not very easy to read, but it's a... Uh, it, it, I, it was a useful series of meditations for me in, in reading it, so I would recommend it, even though it's it's hard to read. And the second thing is just one thing that shouldn't shouldn't pass by too quickly is there's been lots of books come out come out about the Trump administration, but last year last week's revelations that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff thought the president was going to stage a coup to stay in power should rise above. And Susan Glasser wrote about it in the New Yorker should rise above the normal kind of like oh this affirms everything we thought about the president. General Milley is not some like third rate campaign aide who. Um, who is just like telling stories about things. He's a serious person um, whose job was to interact with the president regularly and whose job also was to see threats. Um, normally he was he saw threats coming from abroad to inform the president. In this case, he was worried that the threat itself was the president. That's a serious and signature event in the Trump presidency. And, uh, and everyone should kind of keep that in in their brains as they think about and evaluate what those four years were were like. My chatter, couple couple of things. One is uh, so I'm I've been up in Vermont. I was unsatisfied with everything I was reading, so I ended up picking up uh, the Quiet American Graham Greene book, which I'm not very far into. But it struck me as I started to read it that I had this feeling that I've now had with most of the books I've read recently. Almost anything that I've read that was written between, say, 1900 and 2015 in the English language, that it, they feel oddly irrelevant and historical to me today because I've, I think so much of what guided books in that period was the sense of an American dominance, that American dominance was either the text or subtext of everything. The sense of America, which is weighing down on everyone, and either people are aspiring to it or they're oppressed by it, they hate it, they're annoyed by it, and that America is pushing forward into the world, sometimes obliviously, sometimes goodheartedly, but always the most important place, always the thing that mattered most, always the center of gravity. And reading that today, it feels kind of nostalgic and almost irrelevant, like that we are such a country in retreat. We're so divided. We're so shrinking from the world. We have, and there's this expansive China, like that's, that's reaching forward into the world. We are withdrawing from international challenges, and we're flummoxed, and we're hiding from the great problem of the age, which is, of course, the climate catastrophe. And so, these books in which which the, which it's taken as a given that that the American mind, the American power, the American influence is the the thing that is dominant. They feel like history, and it. It's, an, it's a really alienating experience. And I'm wondering if anyone else is having that, that same feeling as they read. The, the second thing is a, a great tweet I saw from Susan McPherson just it, pointing to some studies about what happened to employment during the pandemic and the fact that now globally 13 million women 
the ma- the male employment will be basically back where it was this year, but 13 million women worldwide will have fallen out of the workforce. That was interesting. What was most interesting, it looked at the percentage of women in the workforce versus the percentage of men in different parts of the world. And generally across the world, it's about 70% of men of working age are in the workforce and about 45% of women are in the workforce. Except if you look in the Arab world, where it's 70% of men are in the workforce, but only 14% of women are in the workforce. 14%. That is stunning. Listeners, you have sent us great chatters. You've tweeted them to us at Slate GabFest. Thank you. Please keep them coming to us. And our listener chatter this week comes from Raghav Venkatasan, and it's about women's car racing. Hi, GabFest. A few weeks ago, you all chatted about Netflix's Drive to Survive and Formula One. Apart from the journalist Jenny Gao, who is the only female in the show, and Sir Lewis Hamilton, who is the only person of color in the show, there was not a lot of diversity depicted in it. Formula racing is much more diverse than that. There are women mechanics, strategists, and even women team principals. There have been women F1 drivers before, and across the junior formula, there are currently many women racing drivers. Let me bring you to the W series. The W Series is a Formula 3 spec racing series created entirely for women racing drivers to open up financial opportunities. The 2021 season follows the Formula 1 circus as a support series and will race alongside F1 at the Circuit of the Americas at Texas later this year. The love and friendships among the drivers in these series, similar to F1, are as fierce as the racing on track itself. Some older drivers are even coaches and mentors of the younger drivers. There is even a documentary series hosted by one of the drivers on YouTube, which talks about the backgrounds of some of these drivers. A little teaser, one of the drivers is a princess, and another is a working mom. I encourage you all to check it out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as your cocktails. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest, and please send some chatter to us. It's summer; you're surely chattering about things. Send us what you're chattering about at, at @SlateGabFest. For Emily Basil and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Unless you are. Maybe maybe we have an astronaut listening to us. Probably we do. Probably have some astronaut listening to us. But you're probably groundbound like us, and you did not go to space this week. You're also probably not a billionaire, although we, maybe we have billionaires who listen to us. Uh, but we have billionaires racing to space. Jeff Bezos went to the edge of space safely in his hilariously phallic Blue Origin rocket. This week, this was only days after... Richard Branson went to a slightly lower edge of space in his Virgin Galactic rocket. Elon Musk uh, who, of SpaceX, who is probably the most successful of the space tycoons, has not yet been to space, although I'm sure he will be there eventually. So is this folly or is it admirable? Like the, 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 the folly, what's the case for that it's folly? Are you kidding? It's just this... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.